welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. We've got a lot to digest today with what's happening in the US government and their budget, talks of the Fed potentially tapering QT earlier than the market expected. And then of course, this discussion of all the rate cuts and the difference between what the Fed's saying and what the market's saying. But before we dive into all of that, I'd like to welcome my wonderful co-host Aisha. Hi, ma'am. Hi, everyone. It's great to be back on the podcast. Um, so a lot going on since the start of the year. It, what we thought would be a quiet start certainly wasn't very quiet. And the markets have been extremely choppy as well, translating some of those, you know, interesting activity. Uh, we heard from a lot of Fed speakers. We have more today and so on and so forth until you know, the blackout period. We've also got earnings season, and that's not off to such a great start now, is it? It's not, and it's interesting because it looked like uh, consensus for year over year was that there'd be less margin in quarter four of 2023 than there was in quarter four of 2022. And you've discussed this as a part of disinflation, that as there's disinflation, corporate margins tend to come down. And it seems like that is at least in part what we're seeing. But there are other elements. I know you've paid attention to bank earnings. And if you want to give us some quick highlights there as to what you're seeing, I think that's been an interesting start to earnings season. Right. So bank earnings have been, let's say, divided. In some cases, what we're seeing is obviously, you know, net interest margin has been going up. And Jamie Dimon even came out and said that, you know, the banks have been over earning in terms of loans because of, you know, the increase in interest rates. But he also cautioned about the economy and what's to come. So, so far, consumer spending has been very strong. And we've seen that in multiple reports in multiple ways. In fact, today we got the retail sales data which also shows that, you know, consumers are still spending. Um, having said that, I think there is a little bit of, uh, you know, caution to be exercised here. Most of the banks are talking about higher costs and cost controls. And you would only do that when you realize that you're not going to make enough at the top line or you have some other constraints come going forward, right? And, and so I think we're going to have a very let's say, split situation. Some of the regional banks have started reporting. Some are good. Some are not so good. But overall, I think um, the situation is simply of caution, right? So we're not saying that uh, revenues and earnings are going to drop drastically. But I think that, you know, we are going to have a bit of a normalization in terms of earnings here. And it's interesting, you talked about cost cutting a little bit. We saw Citigroup making an announcement. They've been laying off rather aggressively, but this is the most aggressive I think we've seen, where they're laying off 20,000 or about 10% of their workforce. They've closed down their muni bond operations, their dist uh, distressed debt trading and otherwise, really trying to slim things down, make them more streamlined and more profitable. And that speaks to what you're seeing. Uh, clearly, they wouldn't be doing that if this was being seen as a year where there'd be more robust growth in the sector. That's right. And they're also closing down some of their operations in Asia. Um, they did discuss that they're having to take a few losses in Argentina. So it, it's not been a great year for Citibank. They are trying to turn it around. Jane Frazier, uh, for what it's worth, she's trying her level best to turn things around over there. 
And whether she succeeds or not is something that we'll have to just wait and see. Absolutely. I think it's a it's an interesting potential turnaround story for the bank and one worth watching. And so let's segue a little bit here from the budgets and the spending of banks to the budget and spending of the U.S. government. This has just been this ongoing, if you lack of for lack of a better word, kerfuffle here. A lot of it is partisan static as we approach the election this year. You know, we have one side that may think it's advantageous to not pass anything but kick the can down the road a bit more, and another that very much wants to come away with a budget and to say that we have a funded government for 2024 and we can continue some of these initiatives. Now, we have another shutdown deadline looming very close, really right around the corner. And the next idea that's being punted about is another continuing resolution into early March, in effect, not resolving anything. And as we've been discussing really since I want to say August or September of last year, as we are approaching the beginning of the 2024 fiscal year. And for folks out there listening that don't track this closely, the U.S. government's fiscal calendar starts on October 1st. So their 2024 started many months ago, and we yet, we have yet to have a budget for anything outside of the DOD. So we got that budget. It was greater than last year. That does increase our confidence in some of our defense picks. We've been talking about that as a underappreciated space. But at the same time, it seems like no matter what, Eventually, we're going to get a budget. That budget is going to be larger than that of fiscal year 2023. There's going to be a larger interest outlay. There's going to be larger spending in nominal terms because of inflation. And there's going to be, of course, as we know, a larger defense budget. So it, it suggests that the issuance from the Treasury is likely to rise from current levels. And as it does, we're hearing more and more discussion about the implications that might have for financial plumbing, for funding. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I know you've been paying extra close attention, particularly in the interconnectivity between the Treasury and the Fed. And we've had some speakers that have helped to color this as well. Sure, absolutely. But before I start that, I wanted to ask you, did you ever think that the defense budget wouldn't be passed? Oh, no, that's a sure thing every year. What isn't as certain is whether it's going to go up every year. It's about 75% odds that it goes up. There are some years where it actually goes down, but we will always pass the defense budget. It's probably the most important budget we pass. Absolutely. So, right. So I, I think what we're talking about here is something that we haven't you know, addressed in the last two years, uh, which is the balance sheet for the Fed, right? So... Things have been going on the way they have, and uh, QD is progressing the way, I wouldn't say the way it should, but, you know, the balance sheet has been declining. But now we're talking about, you know, a QT taper. So the tapering off the slowdown or the roll off of the Fed's balance sheet. Now, this isn't obviously quantitative easing, but it should bring liquidity to the market because what quantitative tightening is doing is taking liquidity out of the market, right? So I think the biggest issue here is um, an idea of where liquidity stands within the system. Um, so for now, what we're seeing is, or le let's take a step back and say what we saw last quarter. So we saw, we got um, an announcement from the US Treasury 
and where we thought that they were going to issue a few, like issue more at the long end versus the short end, they actually issued more at the short end. So what the U.S. Treasury has been doing has been issuing bills, very short-term bills, and short-term, actually mostly short-term bills. Um, so as a result of which, money from the RRP, which is the overnight reverse repo, is flowing into these bills. Now, why is that so? And what's the overnight repo? So basically, the overnight repo is where banks park their excess cash to make a little bit more money. And this rate is usually very high because it's a very liquid instrument or it's a very liquid deposit, let's say. And um, so and it's collateralized. And therefore, the interest rate tends to be higher in that respect. Now, when the U.S. Treasury started to issue very short-term bills, what happened was a lot of these people realized that they could actually earn similar or a little bit more by parking a lot of that reverse repo cash in these shorter-term bills because they were very, very short-term. And it's because the yield curve is inverted, which means that short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, um, most people got that benefit. So this is a bit unusual. And right now what's happening is we want to decide whether or we need this decision from the Treasury as to where they're going to issue. Because if they decide to issue shorter-term bills again, what will happen is money from the reverse repo will flow back into these bills. So why is this a problem? Because usually what happens is even when you're using the reverse repo, you're taking liquidity out of the system, right? Because you're parking your money somewhere or banks are parking their money somewhere. But draining this reverse repo means once this is exhausted, banks will turn to bank reserves. And this is where the problem is, right? So at the moment, bank reserves are at $3.4 trillion for the U.S., which is actually quite okay. I mean, um, there is no stress in the system with reserves at 3.4 trillion. However, if this level drops, that's when um, there is a liquidity crisis. And something similar happened in 2018, 2019, and the Fed actually had to start cutting rates, and they stopped their QT program, and they had to pump money back into the system. Now, there, was, uh, there were a few other issues that came into play at the time. However, the bottom line is liquidity was short. There wasn't enough liquidity in the system, and the Fed had to reverse course and pump in $75 billion of liquidity just to make sure that the system doesn't break down. Now, yesterday, uh, Governor Waller had a lot of comments, and one of his comments was giving us an indication of where the Fed's threshold is. So as I said, $3.4 trillion is what we have right now. And he said that the Fed should be okay with reserves up to 10 to 11% of GDP. And this is non nominal GDP. And so if you look at that amount, that comes down to about $2.7 trillion. So, when these, so now we have an indication of when the QT taper might happen. And I think that's very important because at least now we know when, you know, things are supposed to or going to change, right? So when that threshold comes down to 2.7 trillion, that's when the Fed will start thinking about tapering their quantitative tightening program.
Well, that is that is a lot for our audience to digest. Let's break some of that down to to help folks out there better understand the mechanics of this. So really what it sounds like is the Fed is leaning towards a tapering of QT, not because they've accomplished the core mission of shrinking the balance sheet. And if we look at the balance sheet, it grew to 8.9 trillion. It's now just under 7.7 trillion, about $1.2 trillion of shrinkage. This is less than 20% of peak to current levels. Whereas going into COVID, before the great tsunami of liquidity, there was $4.1 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet, that sort of post-great financial crisis increase, and there was some quantitative tightening, some roll-off of that to get to that $4.1, but then we more than doubled to $8.9 trillion during COVID. And so now we're coming to a point of realization. It sounds like the Fed didn't necessarily want to taper QT. In fact, we've heard from them there was some idea of continuing QT full speed ahead through rate cuts. Now we're hearing a bit of a different story, and that is one of if funding becomes tighter due to bank reserves dropping below that key threshold, that key ratio to GDP, that indeed the Fed may find itself back into a corner, not having accomplished their mission of normalizing their balance sheet, but having to accomplish another goal of making sure that financial stress doesn't become overwhelming and cause them to have an even larger policy response. And it seems like this is a little bit, it's something that's causing a lot of, I would say, confusion in the market as to what's really happening. Is the Fed waving this giant mission accomplished banner saying all the problems of inflation are behind us? Or are they doing this out of necessity? Because the other component of their dual mandate is, of course, maximum employment. And we have that. We have historically low unemployment rates. But in terms of price stability, depending on how you qualify that, core PCE is trending towards 2%. On a six-month annualized basis, you could say we're almost there. But on the other side of it, if we start to stimulate demand in a somewhat resource-constrained world, that may bring those inflationary pressures back. So it's it's a little early to say mission accomplished here. It doesn't seem like it aligns with what Powell really wanted and what he's been talking about really since um, early 2022 in terms of trying to reduce this pressure. And yet we find ourselves in this position where nevertheless, the Fed is going to have to pivot even against perhaps their own better judgment about the core factors that drove them to tighten in the first place. And that seems like that's the discussion that's happening from these Fed speakers, almost to say, you know, we haven't really done what we wanted to do, but we also don't have a choice about what we have to do next. Yeah, so I think a tight labor market is a double-edged sword for the Fed. So on the one hand, because the labor market is tight, you know, um, the economy remains resilient and will likely not slip into a recession, right? So that's the idea of the soft landing. But on the other hand, a tight labor market and liquidity coming back into the system, um, credit growth, or because of the Fed cutting rates, you know, credit growth uh, going up again or increasing can lead to more spending and more spending faster, right? Because it's exactly what we saw last year in terms of, GDP growth remaining extremely high because spending was still there. And who's to say that 
had that fiscal impulse not been there, had that spending not been there, uh, we probably would have seen inflation levels or, you know, decelerate much faster. And the Fed may not have had to hike this far, right? So, but what's done is done. But what we can learn from last year's episode is that with this tightness in the labor market, anything can spark off spending, consumer spending, and, you know, to levels where it could become inflationary again. And it speaks to the idea of our 2024 outlook, the continuation of a K-shaped recovery which is to say there are components of consumer demographics, particularly the top quartile, that are doing quite well. The bottom two quartiles, however, are struggling by most measures. And it's interesting because this K-shaped recovery isn't just one that's delineated by wealth. It's also one that's delineated by age. You have more and more boomers experiencing levels of wealth that allow them to retire early. That early retirement from 50s and 60-somethings earlier than they had potentially expected, earlier than the economy had accounted for, led to that structural tightening of the workforce because there's a lower and lower labor force participation rate. One of the things that Powell had discussed earlier when there was the idea of tightening into some pain, into some weakness, into some demand destruction, was also basically getting some of those early retirees off the bench and back into the workforce. That seems to have been taken off the table now. And so, as you've said, we're now into this sort of secularly tight labor market because folks that retired early can stay retired. Their asset values, whether it's their home, their equities, or to some extent, their bonds are high enough that they don't necessarily have to come back into the workforce, which means we're left with that ratio of about 1.4 unemployed and insured workers to every job available. And while JALTS has been coming down, it ne hasn't necessarily come down to a point where we can say that tightness has been ameliorated, right? We've gone from like 1.7 to 1.4. So it's hardly the time to say mission accomplished. And as we've both been discussing, you know, this is a labor market that is historically bountiful. So there's really not a great reason to increase demand and, and cut the cost of debt because that will lead to more job creation, a tighter labor market, higher wages, and that may pass through to inflation. No, absolutely. And in, interesting enough, something that you pointed out was, um, you know, housing, right? So because people refinance their homes at such low rates during the last, you know, during the time when we had zero rates, um, that's actually given people a lot of breathing space uh, in terms of mortgage payments because mortgage payments tend to be the larger, largest part of your income, right? And so that's kind of given people a lot of breathing space and uh, it's also giving people somewhat like, you know, the wealth effect, right? Just as you pointed out. So people are feeling wealthy because at the end of the day, home prices have not gone down as much. And so people feel that, yes, I am actually sitting on wealth and so I can spend. So it, it's been an interesting journey through, you know, consumer spending. Um, but I think from what we can see, we're not done yet. So there, as you said, there is a portion of the consumer that remains resilient. And I think that will uh, continue. But then we will see a slowdown in general as we move through 2024. 
I think it's a really interesting point that you brought up as well with housing, because we've been talking about this concept of the Fed doesn't really want to do this easing, this tapering of QT, these cuts. It's more that they're feeling like they have to. Another little Easter egg of Powell's quotes in 2022. Later in the year, I want to say it was November, he directly called out the housing bubble. He called it a bubble. And he said to expect a reset as a part of Fed policy. And it's very interesting the amount of different areas that he addressed as concerns that have gone effectively unaddressed, if not metastasized and become worse. And the tightness in the housing market is one of them. Because as you rightly pointed out, low rates have people feeling comfortable, comfortable enough to not want to move comfortable enough to not want to sell their home, which means existing supply, which typically made up almost 80% of supply of homes, is very constrained. Existing home sales are at their lowest levels, I want to say, in over a decade. So builders have to make up for that difference the best they can, and demand is tepid. But because supply is so constrained, prices continue to rise. And this is another issue for the Fed and for inflation, because if the price of homes continue to rise, there's that lagged effect to owner's equivalent rent, right? Six months, nine months forward, inflation isn't going to look so good because we're not getting the relief in the biggest weighting in CPI and PCE. Absolutely. And we can see that in the CPI. We see everything moving, but, you know, shelter inflation remains more or less stagnant. Um, so we're okay. We're not seeing a massive acceleration, but we're not seeing a deceleration either, and, and that's a little worrying because it's remaining sticky, just like the Fed said. And we're we're seeing a situation where um, I think the Fed will want to see this conquered for at least a few months before they can start cutting rates. So talking about rate cuts, I don't think that the Fed would be able to cut rates in March. And if you look at what we talked about in terms of QT, we still have a cushion of about 1.3 trillion in the system. And even if the Treasury, so the estimated uh, issuance from the Treasury is supposed to be 1.9 trillion, and so even if that starts this quarter, um, we still have some ways to go before we have we reach a liquidity crunch per se. Now there are people who seem to suggest that there will be a crash, um, there will be you know a crisis. I don't think that we'll see a crisis per se. This Fed has been very uh, prudent in taking measures before a crisis hits. And I think they've done well with the banking crisis. Um, and if there is something brewing in the system, they're already talking about it, right? So I think by the time we reach the stage where the Fed has to cut rates and QT begins, uh, we're probably looking at the summertime. So quite possibly June, July. You know, speaking of March, they may not cut rates. They might not adjust QT at that meeting. But we are set to see the bank term funding program roll off, at least according to Powell's previous commentary and some of these Fed guidelines. 
do we still feel like that's going to be the case? Is the funding stress in the banking system ameliorated to such an extent that they can do that? I'm inclined to say it probably has been with the, the easing of financial conditions we've experienced. But then on the other side of that, maybe the Fed has a reason to end it then for another reason, the sort of arbitrage play that's happened between Fed facilities where people are earning interest because of using that bank term funding program. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we end it in March? And if we do, does that change some of the calculus here? So I think we will end it in March. The bank term funding program, as I see it, um, is about $147 billion right now. That's the outstanding as of this Wednesday. Um, and this can easily, easily be moved to the discount window. What was the Fed's regular discount window, right? And moreover, I, I don't, so even given the repo levels, given the bank reserve levels, I don't think that this is an amount that will break the system. So let's break that down for folks that are listening, because I know a lot of people out there are hearing these terms. They don't necessarily know what the difference is or what they mean. So for the bank term funding program, this was something that the Federal Reserve spun up in response to the Silicon Valley bank crisis. And they did so so that banks could take their treasury and qualifying mortgage-backed security assets, the ones like Ginny's and Fannie's and Freddie's that are agency-backed, and they could park them at the Fed, get 100 cents on the dollar for them. But they would have to take out a loan at the prevailing rate, which about five, five and a half percent against that, which means they had a negative carry cost. Now we're talking about this idea of moving away from that and actually going to the discount window, which was named because you generally take a discount on whatever collateral that you're providing, which would mean that this, this changes the calculus a little bit. That is to say, if you go to the discount window and the Fed says, well, that mortgage is worth 75 cents on the dollar, that's all they're going to give you. So it, it, it's a little bit less forgiving, but it is still kind of foaming the runway. It is still preventing a greater kerfuffle. So I'm with you. I think they can roll off the bank term funding uh, program without major consequences. It's something that's been broadcasted well in advance. So certainly it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone. And I appreciate your thoughts there, coloring it from the perspective of someone who has 20 years of experience in the financial industry. So really a different angle of looking at all of this. So as we round out this conversation about what's happening in the banking system and the Fed, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to, to share with our audience here? Right. So I think there's a lot of talk about this bank term funding program. So I just want to make a couple of more things clear about this program. So the program finishes in March. And one of the primary reasons that the Fed might actually close down the program is because, as you rightly pointed out, things in the system have improved. I told you the amount is not that much and can be moved to the discount window. But as well, the bank term funding program has a lower interest rate than what the Fed is paying um, on reserves. So basically what you said was they take out a loan, right? They take out this loan at 4.83%, which is what they pay the Fed in interest. So the bank's interest rate to the Fed is 4.83%. But the Fed pays interest on deposits to the banks, and that interest rate is 5.4%. So basically, the banks are winning here, right? So they're paying a lower interest rate on these loans versus what they're getting on their reserves. 
And so the Fed is actually losing out here. They're actually net-net. They're paying more. And this is one of the reasons why the Fed will probably want to move all of this to the discount window. Because if you look at the discount window, the primary rate is 5.5%, which is above the interest on reserves. And the secondary credit rate is 6%, which is even further above the interest that they're receiving. And that's how things are supposed to work, by the way. Banks are not supposed to be, let's say, um, earning through this arbitrage method, right? So everything considered, I think that this program in March is going to be shut down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you adding some more color on that arbitrage area that we that I had brought up earlier, because I think for folks out there listening, that's really interesting. It's been covered a bit by the financial media. But when you get into the plumbing of it, obviously, the Fed doesn't want to lose, particularly when there isn't the stress in the system to warrant having that program remaining open. So this has been a really interesting discussion from what's happening in the government's budget and the U.S. government to the Federal Reserve and some of the areas of the banking system. For folks that have listened, if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, feel free to write us an email to hello at macrovisor.com. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, feel free to leave us feedback, a rating, and as always, subscribe. You'll get your next podcast notification. You can listen to uh, what we have to share, and typically we're coming out with these about once a week. So thanks again for listening. Check out our work over at www.macrovisor.com. We find that macro and momentum equal opportunity. <laughs>